The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Time for another podcast, eh, old cucumber? And tonight, we are going to be talking about the legendary British comic, 2000 AD. Previously on the show, we had a friend of the show, Richard Sheaf, come on and tell us about the history of British comics. But there is one British comic that stands above all others, and that is 2000 AD. Oh, I and thought you were going to say about, Monster Fun. Well, there's, there's that too. Um, <laughs> and to talk about 2000 AD, we brought on the show the host of the Mega City Book Club podcast, Eamon Clark. Welcome to the show, Eamon. Thank you very much. Hello, Don. Hello, Rob. Thank you for having me. No, thank you so much for coming on. You are a very knowledgeable person about this topic and the perfect person to have on the podcast to talk about it. So before we begin, though, let's learn a bit about you. So, Eamon, what's your background with uh, comics in, in, in the UK? Uh, so it goes all the way back to the 1970s when we would get British black and white reprint anthologies of Marvel comics, Marvel UK. Right. Uh, so I was reading some British comics. I was reading the Marvel UK reprints in the 1970s. 2000 AD starts in 1977, which we'll get to shortly. Mm -hmm. uh, I, like the rest of the British invasion, I sort of went across the pond and read American and North American comics in the 80s and 90s and so on. But mm -hmm. I've stuck with 2000 AD uh, over the years, and I'm still, I still get it regularly every week, plus the Judge Dredd magazine every month. Um, and I now, for the last four years, I, as you say, I've been doing this podcast, Mega City Book Club, which is all about uh, the galaxy's greatest comics. Um, right. Mainly 2000 AD, we do venture into other British comics, and occasionally we venture across the pond to follow a sort of British creator into uh, American or North American comics. So um, mm. as we record, the next episode I've got coming out is actually about... Detective Comics, Batman on Detective Comics, um, oh, wow. because John Wagner and Alan Grant, two British writers, did a mm -hmm. lengthy run, or at least Alan Grant did a lengthy run with Norm Brayfogle. So, yeah, we do all sorts. So we do British comics, we do 2000 AD, we do occasional American comics, uh, and that's basically it, yeah. Lifelong comic fan and comic collector and now a podcaster. Right. Now, are you connected at all with, is it Rebellion Studios that currently is publishing the uh, 2080 books? No connection whatsoever, thank goodness, in a way, because um, <laughs> that means I can say what I like. No, I'm not connected <laughs> with them at all. Okay. As you say, Rebellion Studios, who video games are now moving into film and television production, they own 2080 now. But mm -hmm. no, that's um, nothing. No connection at all. I'm a completely independent podcast. Um, okay. Yeah. No, that's that's good, as you say. So you can say whatever you feel about uh, their work or their productions, and you're not limited by uh, corporate necessity. 
All right, so I think we should probably dive right in then and talk about the subject of the evening, which is, of course, 2000 AD. So, Eamon, where did 2000 AD begin? What are the origins of the 2000 AD comic? So it begins, um, as you probably know, in that sort of science fiction boom that's happening towards the end of the 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a chap called Kelvin Gosnell over here who, in fact, went on to edit 2000 AD for a while. Um, he famously, for British comic fans, read an article in the newspaper about the sort of coming batch of science fiction films. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they were talking about things like Logan's Run, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and of course, that certain film that was going to be called Star Wars. And I think as Richard discussed, you know, over here, we've always had comics that have sort of followed a trend in the, uh, you know, the popular culture at the time. So he suggested we should do a science fiction comic uh, he suggested it to the company he was working for, this comic company called IPC. I think, as Richard mentioned, we strangely enough we've had, we've always had a big two comic com uh, comic companies over here as well, and IPC was one of them. Um, mm -hmm. And so they decide, yes, we'll do a science fiction comic, thinking that it would be just like another one of their disposable comics, that it would only be there for a couple of years, it would ride the trend, and then it would probably be, um, as Richard said, hatched, matched, or dispatched, and fold <laughs> away. But, of course, here we are, 43-odd years later, and it's still going, one of the sort of the, the biggest British comics of all time. Yes, that's, that's amazing. Wow, okay. And so... The comic that you're referring to, the one that was created to cash in, that no, was so they Star start Lord, with 2018. John Sanders, the publisher, comes up with this incredibly okay. futuristic title. Uh, you know, because it's 1977, nobody can possibly imagine <laughs> 2018. Right. Um, and in fact, over the years, one of the sort of ongoing subjects in the letters column was always what are we going to call the comic after 2018. But anyway, so they come up with this title, they give it to the chap who's mm -hmm. often described as the godfather of British comics or Uncle Pat. This is a chap called Pat Mills, um, who had form mm -hmm. for creating uh, successful comics, successful weekly British comics. He created a war title called Battle or mm -hmm. Battle Picture Weekly, I think mm -hmm. is its full title, where everybody just calls it Battle. And then, of course, he created the infamous comic Action which I know you talked to Rich about, um, mm -hmm. the comic that sort of yes. got banned, a comic that got into all sorts of trouble, um, created a bit of moral panic of, it, of the time. So anyway, they handed him uh, 2000 AD and he brings out, um, mm -hmm. he puts together this science fiction comic and brings out the first issue in, uh, I think, February 1977. Um, and it's still going weekly ever since. Mm -hmm. Right. Then how does that connect over with other IPC's other title, Star-Lord, which I know some of the comics from Star-Lord end up so, in 2000 AD? Again, this was them you know, riding the tide. Uh, science fiction was doing incredibly well. Mm -hmm. 2000 AD quickly became very popular and was selling you know, possibly 200,000 copies a week, something like that, uh, maybe even mm -hmm. more in its heyday. So, as ever, the publishers think, well, that's great. We should do more of that. So they looked to produce ah, another okay. science fiction title, and that's where they came up with Star-Lord. 
And actually, when you read some of the histories of that, they really wanted to do um, a mm -hmm. very upmarket, glossy, nice paper magazine. They were looking across the channel to um, uh, Europe and, of course, heavy metal or metal hurlon, yeah. as it was called. And they wanted, right. they wanted to do something like that. And in the end, of course, the budget wasn't there for that and they ended up with a slightly scaled down comic the paper was a bit better than 2000 ad was printed on at the time uh, but star lord doesn't last very long uh it introduced some great comics but it's you know again it's another one of these comics mm -hmm. that didn't really capture the audience like 2000 ad had um and then after about right. I forget how many issues Star-Lord ran on. It's, you know, it's not that many. It's only about 30 weeks, I think. And then it was folded into the pages of 2000 AD. And as you say, they bring over some of the successful strips. Right. So the ones that particular are Strontium Dog, which uh, Don sort of referred to <laughs> in yeah. his introduction. You know, this is... Uh, Johnny Alpha and Wolf Sternhammer and the old their old cucumber... Um, so that was very popular, mm -hmm. Strontium Dog. And the other one that came over was Robusters, which was a sort of oh. slightly right. uh, down and dirty satirical look at the Thunderbirds, the Jerry yeah. Anderson type show um, with mm -hmm. robots. Um, so they come over into Star -Lord, uh, from Star-Lord into 2000 AD. And there was another comic called Tornado that happened the mm. same. Tornado got folded into 2000 AD. This was extremely common at the time for British comics. It was expected that they would only last a few years mm -hmm. and then you'd fold them into uh, another comic and the good, t the good stories would perhaps continue for a while um, or they might get discarded. And um, I don't know if you had the phrase over in America and ca Canada, you know, where they'd say one week they would announce great news for all readers and it invariably wasn't great news because it meant your comic was folding. <laughs> <laughs> no they did not do yeah. that over yeah. here okay I mean, there's even blogs and books now called great news for all readers which play on that theme uh, about the the hatch match and dispatch policy of british publishers at the time yeah we we, we never had that you just right. all of a sudden the book you like would disappear because that that explains like as a kid where I live, we used to get a lot of the British ones. We'd get the weeklies, but you couldn't get them reliable, like reliably. Yeah. And that explains I had no idea that you had a hard time following characters because in a lot of these, the character who appeared in one book uh, for this month, when you get three or four of them, three months later, when you get another whack of these things, all the characters you like would be in totally different books. And it was a hell of a time following any particular story. Yeah, I mean, I've just recently been talking about a British comic book character called Deathwish, mm -hmm. uh, who was a stuntman character, again, mm -hmm. going into that popular culture. He was a very sort of evil Knievel, um, the fool guy type stunt character who... Um, literally had the death wish mm -hmm. of the title and would do anything in a you know in any any desperate stunt and if you wanted to follow that character he jumped over three different comics uh wow. during the, the span of that story so you know he starts <laughs> in a comic called speed he goes to i think he ends up in the new eagle and i forget somewhere else in the in the middle that he goes first as well so yeah as you say 
one week you'd have your character and the next week your comic was gone but the character might be in a different comic altogether there, there's another thing I was wondering about uh, the beginnings of 2000 AD because it comes out shortly after action gets uh, gets cancelled and I was always wondering about that because 2000 AD is a really really aggressive violent and at times gruesome book and I'm wondering did the action thing put them off or did that tell everybody that's what people want let's fudge it if we do it science fiction we can get away with a little more oh it was definitely the latter definitely the latter Rob hmm. the, the, the publishers and the editors have talked about this they knew they could get away with violence if it was violence being done to robots uh, to dinosaurs, uh, of course, <laughs> in the strip flesh, which um, combined cowboys hunting mm -hmm. dinosaurs. Um, mm -hmm. You know, as another podcast described, it's almost like a focus group for kids. You know, you got cowboys and dinosaurs. <laughs> um, or if they, or if the people getting <laughs> the violence, you know, um, put upon them are the bad guys, are the criminals, and that, of course. Mm to some extent explains the success of Judge Dredd, who also shot his fair share of robots, mm -hmm. aliens, and of course, criminals. So yeah, absolutely, it was yeah. this idea. Uh, violent comics are popular, kids love them, but we can't have the what action was doing, which was showing a sort of more realistic British street level of violence, uh, you know, football mm. hooliganism. Uh, or kids rebelling against um, parents and police officers. The infamous cover of action that appeared to show a policeman on the floor while a kid was swinging a uh, bicycle chain round his head. Um, mm -hmm. So that sort of thing got them into mm -hmm. real trouble. Yeah, if you do violence to robots, aliens or criminals, you can get away with it in a comic. <laughs> yeah, because that... It, it seems weird, too, because the even the early 2080s, one of the things that got you in trouble here in North America uh, during the 70s and the 80s was you couldn't show any blood. But 2000 AD didn't have a problem with that, I noticed. It's, uh, you know, they certainly tried it. There was, a, there was some censorship that would go on. Uh, an artist called Kevin O'Neill, who interestingly mm. later went on to be uh, run into a bit of trouble with his own artwork in DC Comics because they mm -hmm. found his artwork too disturbing, um, and who's probably best known for doing League of Extraordinary Gentlemen with Alan Moore. Mm. His first job in comics mm. was what he describes as the bodger, and the bodger was to go round the pages and sort of tidy up the violence. So if, like, a sword or a laser sword had been thrust through somebody and was coming out the back, his job would be to take the back part out so they didn't look like, you know, it, you know he'd be completely impaled. And so you'd see <laughs> weird scenes where the sword seemed to disappear. But, yes, there was blood and gore, particularly, I suppose, they could get away with it more on the black and white pages because most of the comic at that time was all black and white. There was only the four colour pages, which would be the front and back cover, and then a middle page, double page spread would be in colour, and that was all. Yeah. The rest of it was all done in black and white. Yeah, because another thing um, I'm going to mention for the, the folks listening, some might not realise, at this time, the idea, British comics were weekly, they looked like little newspapers, and they were printed on extremely cheap newsprint. 
absolutely terrible paper. Uh, over here, we call it bog paper or toilet paper quality. <laughs> so it is. It was the cheapest newsprint, and yeah. uh, you look at the comics now, um, and of course it was quite clear that they were never intended to be any form of lasting medium. They were cheap, disposable comics. They were designed to be read, folded, stuck in your back pocket, passed to another kid, swapped, and so on. And it was also expected that that title would be gone in a couple of years anyway. It would never, you know, no title kept going. Um, so, yeah, printed on terrible paper, um, <laughs> probably you could get away with more on the terrible mm. paper in terms of black and white and showing violence and gore. But yes, absolutely awful quality it was on. Um, the fact that they still survive, you know, is of course because just like North American comics, um, a lot of those early North American comics were very sort of cheap and disposable, but people kept them, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Now, when when they wrote these things originally. Uh, especially 2000 AD, was there a feeling that people would want to revisit the stories or was it just thought that you'd read it, you'd get a kick out of it, and then you'd move on? I think I think very much the latter, that, you know, that this was the weekly thrill. And, of course, the stories in 2000 AD were famously over here. They're called thrills, not stories, mm -hmm. um, by, our, uh, by the alien editor Tharg, which is another little idiosyncrasy <laughs> of British comics we all have fictional editors for these papers mm -hmm. um but yeah the idea that the story was just a cheap thrill it was got done and gone uh and then of course something interesting happens as the comic succeeds as the comic starts to tick off the years and you get creators like pat mills like john wagner uh, uh who start to sort of alan grant who start to sort of push the uh push the envelope a little bit and actually say, well, you know, we've got these characters rather than just doing the Billy's boots thing of giving them the same story week on week out, we can actually start to explore um, some more interesting stories. We can do long narratives. Uh, you get the judge dread mega epics as they're called, um, which mm -hmm. become big events and go over several weeks or months or even years to tell a long sequential story so you know i think yeah as it develops you get people saying we're we going to push these stories and actually start to do something interesting and get an awful lot of um satire you get a lot of commentary on politics and mm. current events going on in the comics it's still to this day you'll still get quite recognizable um sort of uh, what would you call them, satirical looks at popular figures, politicians and the like, get sort of woven into stories quite often. But yeah, I think the the cheap weekly thrills were replaced as the comic succeeded by more interesting and, you know, expanded stories and universes. Because mm -hmm. hmm. the first one I can remember, and it's, I, I at the time I didn't realise how how noteworthy it was but in judge dread they did the original cursed earth which was one of those i think that was the first dread big mega epic yes uh, te technically because the the robot rebellion one was a continuing story but it was it was much shorter and did anybody do things like that before the cursed earth one or was that like new for british comics so um i think if you go back 
Because the other great figure that sort of bestrides uh, British comics is Dan Dare and the Eagle comic. So Dan Dare would have lengthy stories that ran through weeks and weeks and weeks back in the uh, the 50s and 60s. And of course, uh, one of the selling points for 2000 AD when it started was that the return of Dan Dare. Mm-hmm. Um, although strangely, although it was used as a selling point, he didn't become one of the successful strips in the comic. It was uh, it was the Steve Austin Six Million Dollar Man ripoff Mac One, which was most popular at first, and then, as you say, Judge Dredd huh. goes on to become the defining character for 2000 AD. But yeah, yeah, Pat Mills sends Judge Dredd across the cursed Earth. Um, on a mission to carry a vaccine to Mega City 2, would you believe? Um, <laughs> how opposite. Uh, and that go runs for weeks and weeks and weeks and really puts Dread through the ringer. Um, mm-hmm. He meets all sorts of mutant gangs and dinosaurs and all sorts of threats before literally crawling on his hands and knees into Mega City 2 uh, to succeed in his mission. And that was, yeah, that was like the first big epic story and then of course since then every few years we've had to have a dread epic that goes yeah. on and on for several weeks and they've become a real thing yeah because and of course they, they that's that the one fairly... oh. i was going to say that's the one where they also introduced copyrighted characters from uh mcdonald's and burger king and uh the michelin man and things like that and got to all sorts of trouble got some yeah. cease and desist letters yeah, because uh, that's just recently that they've, uh, I think this is the last couple of years, they've been able to actually print those stories. That's right. Well, all previous collections of The Cursed Earth, the Judge Dredd story, had to miss out the pages where he got caught up in a strange battle between Mac- the, the survivors <laughs> of McDonald's and Burger Kings. Uh, and yeah. as you say, the <laughs> Judge Dredd, uh, The Cursed Earth, uncensored, has recently been published in the last few years. Yeah. I think it took a change. Oh, it was a change. It, it's a well, no. It's a good question. It was a change in British um, libel laws about um, satire and uh, depiction of uh, of characters that you could Makes get sense. away with Makes that sense. now. So yes, the law changed and they got away with it. <laughs> uh, okay, because I'm surprised taking on McDonald's or Burger King's lawyers sounds pretty scary. Well, it was, I think, extremely scary in 1978, 79, whenever it was. So when they, the publishers got a letter from whoever's lawyers sent them the letter, they immediately sort of like shut it down, you know, never reprint that story, never do that again, print an apology. Um, so it happened and they sort of quickly moved on from it. And thankfully, I think the big corporations didn't take it any further at the time. Yeah, good for them. Out of curiosity, you mentioned reprints. Was it common to reprint British comics? Uh, not at all. There would have been a few album collections of Dan Dare comics in the 70s. Again, looking across to France and, you know, the uh, success of Bande Dessinée comics in France, which would be publishing these lovely albums. So that happened, and there's a few of those. And then um, a couple of chaps from IPC in 2000 AD go off and one of them founds Forbidden Planet, the uh, the comic shop and sort okay. of 
chain and another one fans Titan Books. Hmm. And it was Titan Books that would start to put out the reprints of Judge Dredd and 2000 AD stories in the 1980s. Um, hugely popular, sort of big album-sized uh, reprints, still in black and white, but very, very popular. Um, loads of, I can see them on my bookshelf from here. Loads of people still collect them. Uh, the, the binding, famously, was not terribly good on them, so you could tell how well-loved they were in red because some of the pages would be falling out. But, yeah, it wasn't terribly common, but 2000 AD and then Titan Books sort of led the way in the sort of 80s for it. Interesting, because as we talked about with Richard and that, I, I have a personal theory that one of the reasons why British comics kind of fizzled a little bit was because of the lack of collections and the lack of ability for people to go back and read their favorite stories again, beyond a very limited number of titles like Dan Dare and Judge Dredd, etc. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I can't remember when they started putting out the Judge Dredd case files. Um I think it was when Rebellion took over, they started publishing all the Judge Dredd stories. They reprint them in order. Uh, one year's worth of strips, a volume, the case files, and they come out. Mm -hmm. A couple of those come out every year, and they're still going strong. Right. But they but they don't have ones for uh, some of the other 2000 AD titles, do they? Like Strontium Dog and the others? Are they also available? Yes, they are. You can get big phone book uh, collections of Strontium Dog, um, both in, in, in paper copy and in digital now. Um, and they have, I think one of the things Rebellion realised was that they had all this back catalogue. And if you've got the stuff, um, you may as well try and, you know, earn some money from it. And over the past 5, 10, 15 years, the reprint market has really took off. The you know the mm -hmm. audience has grown up. We've got a little bit of disposable income. We will spend it on nice quality reprints of these comics we remember from our childhood. So they've really mm -hmm. been mining the back catalogue, and now you can get pretty much most of the stories in some form, collection or other. Maybe in digital, um, Strontium Dog you can get in both. I say as I say, hard copy and digital. They've recently put out a lovely colour hardback version of the original Star Lord Strontium Dog stories. Hmm. Um, of course, one of the problems that rebellions had to do or had to overcome is that sometimes they don't have the original artwork, they don't have the original photographic films. So some of this is literally them scanning in old comics and then using new technologies to clean that up again dealing with that terrible problem of the paper quality so you would get mm -hmm. uh you'd get that bleed through which i'm sure you're familiar with north american comics on on newsprint would have the same problem you'd get the the other page right. bleeding yeah. through so now they use all sorts of weird um technologies to clean that up and then they bring out these lovely collections so the star lord strontium dog collection um which only just came out last year. It was delayed by COVID, obviously, but it's come out now, and that's really uh, worth looking at. Um, Strontium Dog is a strip that sort of hit the ground running in Star-Lord. Right from the very start, you can see how perfect it is. Um, John Wagner, Alan Grant, and Carlos Esquera, the great Spanish artist Carlos Esquera. It's really worth looking at, um, some of the pages of that. Hmm, I believe it. 
because I remember the Titan, uh, the Titan reprints. That was like late '80s. They were doing that, and the Titan ones were nice, but they were a little expensive. Like the nice thing about the Rebellion ones is they're not cheaply done, but they're affordable. And I like the idea that, say, for the Dreads, each collection is a year of the comic, because Dread did the thing from the was it from the beginning that every year that passed in real life represented a year in the comic. Yes, so Judge Dredd, who, of course, you know, famously doesn't start until issue two or prog two of 2000 AD, but has since been in it just about every week. Um, He gets older. He ages in real time. Mm -hmm. So he was presumably in his 30s uh, when the comic started, or maybe in his late 20s. He's now must be in his 70s. The city has changed and grown each year. It's been devastated numerous times by all these mm-hmm. mega epics, the Apocalypse War. Um, a few years ago, they ran a storyline called Day of Chaos, which was about a plague that decimated the city. Um, and Dread just keeps getting older and grouchier and, um, <laughs> in some senses, wiser. Uh, he's been rejuvenated a few times. So they've used science mm-hmm. to make him physically younger and they say that you know in the future 70 is is current is equal to about 40 now or something like that which is why he's still active on the streets of mega city one but yeah the strip ages uh, in real time and he is now the old man literally the old man of mega city one yeah he technically died at one point too uh he's <laughs> He's been dead or almost dead a few times. Um, yeah. Are you referring to the storyline, The Dead Man? Yes. Yes, I am. Ah, right. <laughs> okay. Cause... So, yes, spoilers. But <laughs> <laughs> one of the greatest stories. Now, was that the... like an imaginary story? Oh. or? Sorry. Well, I, without Sorry. giving too much away, there was a mega epic called Necropolis, which features... Dread's arch enemies, the Dark Judges, these dark, corrupted mm-hmm. versions of judges from another world where they've made the completely logical assumption that because all <laughs> criminals are alive or all crime is committed by the living, therefore if they kill all the living, then there'll be no more crime. Um, Makes sense. <laughs> so Necropolis ran in 2000 AD, this huge story about the dark judges finally coming and taking their, 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 you know, meeting out what they saw as justice on Mega City One. And the story that led up to it was a story called The Dead Man. And I won't give away um, the twist and how it works out because it is worth reading The Dead Man and Necropolis, both of which are mm-hmm. terrific stories and sort of like pinnacles in Judge Dredd's history. But yes, mm-hmm. you're quite right. Uh, on he did in a way die and then come back um and he's also as you say he's been through the rejuvenation tanks a few times mm-hmm. yeah I, I remember the dead man and necropolis because like i say here we could get the british comics but intermittently and they had just re- made the big reveal in the dead man ah, Nec- right yeah, yes ne- necropolis is going strong we didn't get any more 2000 ADs for like a year. And by the time we got them, they were already into like the day of judgment. And we're like, what the hell happened? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So yes, I I can imagine that would be a huge cliffhanger to be left on. Um, 
I remember uh, the British comic Warrior over here that star where Marvel Man or Miracle Man started with Alan mm. Moore, but also V for Vendetta starts in that. Um, and again, we had the similar situation because Warrior folded. And when Warrior mm. ended, V for Vendetta, I think, had just revealed uh, who Evie's captor was when she was in prison. And then, of course, it was it was some, I think, three or four years before DC picked up that story and finished it. Yeah. So I can imagine the delay of trying to find out what happened to the dead man and Necropolis for several for a year or more must have been terrible. Oh, it was bad because we knew what happened. We just had no idea how it happened. It was I, I kid you not. It was only a couple years ago with the rebellion reprints that they caught up to that point, and I finally got to see. Oh, that's what happened. Oh wow. Okay, right. <laughs> that's been killing me for like twenty years. <laughs> <laughs> A Judge Dredd will do that to you. Judge Dredd stories will, yeah. Because <laughs> there was there was another 2000 AD one that has kind of a, a, a jacked up history like that was Metal Zoic, wasn't it? So Metal Zoic, Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill, a weird future Earth, a sort of an ecological story that the Earth has been ruined by an ecological disaster, and there's these weird robot dinosaur creatures that rule the Earth. Um, and it was printed by DC Comics, I think, for a while. And then it's had this complicated publication history and hasn't been able to be reprinted. I think, I think the rights are with DC, but they won't reprint it for some reason. I can't remember. I did an episode of the podcast about it, which I'll have to, to check again. But yeah, Metal Zoic's very interesting. Um, mm -hmm. Kevin O'Neill artwork again, which is great stuff. Uh, the bodger who became the incredibly talented <laughs> artist himself. Um, but yeah, complicated publication history with that one as well. Yeah, because I, I remember it was advertised a lot. And yeah, I think DC did it, but the thing was they kind of didn't tell anybody, so it came out and nobody here knew it. And I thought it ended up in 2000 AD eventually which nobody knew was coming either like it's it's got that this weird stealth publishing history for some reason and then the reprints there were you know i think there was one album collection of that and then it became it was deleted became very hard to find mm -hmm. hasn't been reprinted since maybe they'll work out the details and realize there's uh there's money in there but uh <laughs> yeah um the the ownership of it is complicated Oh. Yeah, because that the, the 80s were a weird time for 2000 AD, weren't they? Yes, I mean, it you know, to some extent it was going through its golden age, certainly in the early 80s, with the great stories, the Apocalypse War, um, Chopper, the Dark mm. Judges had appeared, Strontium Dog was going from strength to strength. Um, but probably towards the end of the 80s, I suspect when its audience was starting to grow out of the comic... And possibly the readership was falling. Steve McManus, who was the famous editor um, of 2000 AD in its golden age, he took a sort of sabbatical. He, you know, I think he burnt out a little bit and he went away for a while and then came back with some ideas for new comics. So it started to, you know, it started to struggle a bit towards the end of the 80s, I think. Uh, you could see some of the troubles of the 90s on the horizon. Because uh, the 90s, like for a lot of comics, 
you know, British comics in the 90s struggled, 2000 AD in the 90s struggled. Um, we're lucky it's still going in a way, but it, yes, it has survived. And of course, uh, from that period, you've got the great artists because Brian Bolland famously does, you know, most of his early work is on 2000 AD before he becomes, uh, he goes across the pond, he does the killing joke and things like that. But then he, yeah. I guess since then, he's largely a cover artist, isn't he, these days? Um, yeah. As I say, Carlos Esquera, the great Spanish artist who's sadly no longer with us, but his work on Star-Lord. And of course, he was co-creator of Judge Dredd, although that was complicated because they didn't use his artwork in the second issue and that, that upset him for quite a long time and he didn't come back, mm -hmm. but he eventually came back to Dread. Um, it, you know, these wonderful artists, these wonderful writers. I mean, Alan Moore gets sort of his breaks writing these future shock stories in 2000 AD, these little one, yeah. two or three page uh, little science fiction stories with a twist ending. Um, some of which, you know, some of which Alan Moore's ones in fact all of them you know the future shocks they've all been collected now the alan moore ones have been collected in a separate book some of those mm. are great stuff as well <clears throat> hmm. I, can, I can see that so so what are some of uh, our audience probably is familiar with judge dread so we're not so we don't need to spend too much time on dread unless, unless you want to of course but what are some of the lesser known uh 2000 ad titles that you think are worth people looking into or checking out so, uh, well, let's stick with Alan Moore for a moment. Um, okay, sure. Because I often think the great sort of forgotten Alan Moore work, there's two of them. One is called um, The Ballad of Halo Jones, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with. Um, a series of I've heard stories. of it, but I've never actually... Oh, sorry. Well, it's, it's an interesting one because it's a, it's a collaboration with the artist Ian Gibson, um, mm -hmm. who you might know from doing the Robo Hunter strip in 2000 AD. Right. And um, apparently Ian Gibson had the idea that he, for a comic that was predominantly, let's be honest, a boy's comic, that mm -hmm. he wanted to write a female character or he wanted to draw a female character. And he suggested this idea to Alan Moore and they came up with this futuristic story of a young woman who starts out being concerned with sort of like simple stuff about, you know, just surviving day-to-day -day life in a futuristic city, dealing with soap operas, dealing with friends who are in bands, dealing with having the, the, the horrors of having to go on a shopping trip. <laughs> and then she'll get off planet in the second book and have an adventure on a, um, a space cruiser. And in the third book, she goes to war and it becomes one of possibly, you know, the, uh, the great... Uh, 2000 AD strips in the third book um, and the Alan Moore strip that often gets forgotten about when they talk about his great works V for Vendetta and Watchmen and League of Extraordinary Gentlemen from Hell and so on um, so Halo Jones is great sadly it was never finished because yeah. you won't be too surprised to hear that Alan Moore had differences with the publishers and decided <laughs> to walk away um you may have heard of him doing that from time to time <laughs> mm -hmm. um so they never finished that the other one that he wrote was skiz i don't know have you heard about skiz yeah that no. that that was that the one it was kind of like a weird et kind of thing yes they got him they heard that et was coming again it's that publisher or editors thing they're aware of popular culture they know et is coming 
they're hearing all the buzz about it. So they ask Alan Moore and an artist, a Scottish artist called Jim Bakey, to come up with an ET-like strip. And so they write and produce this strip called Skiz about an alien that falls to Earth in the sort of run-down post-industrial city of Birmingham, uh, which I guess you'd sort of call almost Rust Beltish sort of landscape, mm. and meeting these ordinary mm. people who don't have jobs, don't have futures, and it's a it's a little gem of a story um, that actually over the years I've come to prefer to ET, but. Uh, so Skiz is worth hunting down. And again, that's now collected and you can buy that. You can buy the several reprints of the Ballad of Halo Jones. They've yeah. even done a coloured version. They've done a colourised version of Halo Jones. Um, if black and white comics are a bit tricky for you. So you can now get coloured versions, which are quite good. Um, turning to colour strips, let's move away from Alan Moore. Let's think about Button Man. Mm -hmm. Um Written okay. by John Wagner, who is, again, one of the co-creators of Judge Dredd. Um, one of the great writers of British comics over the last 40 or 50 years. Just keeps putting out uh, great stuff. He also wrote the strip, not for 2000 AD, but he wrote the strip History of Violence, which became a film. You're probably familiar mm. with that. Cronenberg made that into a film. So Button yep. Man, with the, uh, the artist Arthur Ranson, is a very grim and gritty, hard-nosed sort of death game thriller about an ex-soldier who gets brought into a... Um, it's, it's that old story, The Most Dangerous Game. It's basically hunting other, uh, other hitmen. People. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. Hunting other people who are, who are in the pay of these rich syndicates of gamblers who bet on the outcome of these death matches. Um, oh, okay. And that's, you know, the artwork in that is stunning by mm. Arthur Ranson, who did go on to do, I think he did some Batman um but that button man is worth doing and as it's one of those 2000 ad properties that has been optioned for tv and film so many times over the years but it's never got through production hell it's always you know stalled um but look if you look at the uh, the artwork it's very cinematic you can see it as a sort of gritty noir thriller um there's another strip by Arthur Ranson, this time with uh, Alan Grant, who for you know a long time was John Wagner's writing partner, and as I say, did a long run on detective comics. Um, but a strip called Maze World, that's a sort of weird, uh, a character who seems to fall through some sort of dimensional portal into another world. It's the sort of... It's the sort of story where the character ends up on a, a stranger on a strange world, where he ends up as some sort of um, rebel leader or heroic figure leading the rebellion. Uh, again, mm -hmm. with this absolutely gorgeous uh, artwork by Arthur Ranson, they put out a beautiful collection of that a couple of years ago. It's a complete story. So Maze World by Alan Grant and Arthur Ranson, I'd really recommend that. Um, mm -hmm. And then... Dan Abnett, you're probably familiar with Dan Abnett, one half of the Abnett and Lanning 
writing combo who came up with the revised Guardians of the Galaxy team, I think. Um, he wrote a lot of sort of Marvel cosmic stuff. He has mm-hmm. been a consistent presence for uh, 2000 AD over the last ooh, 20, 30 years. Always seems to have something going in the prog uh, in 2000 AD Weekly. And he's done a strip with an artist called INJ Colbard, and it's called Brink. Uh, and that's still ongoing. It's now out in, I think there's three trades of that so far, with a fourth one coming out in 2021. And that is um, Humanity is, the last of humanity are living in space stations. Um, and there's a weird sort of police procedural murder mystery. There's strange cults. There may or may not be Lovecraftian monsters, or it may be all the the influence of all the um, the mood-altering drugs that people take to try and cope with the existential mm. crisis of living in a in a tin can. Um, and that's right. a great strip. So Brink, yeah, that's highly recommended. It, it's, it's funny you mentioned Halo Jones. That's actually one of my favorite comics, but I found I preferred the first two books to the third. Right. Because they were, they were so weird because... It's essentially a mundane story in a fantastic setting, and that made mundane things weird. Like you mentioned, they have to go grocery shopping, but you have to get to the other, the other end of the hoop, which is the, 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 the city, and you have to get through the crowds and the gangs and like the weird aliens, and they have things like the Zen Aids that when they blow up, they make you all mellow and stuff. Yeah. Um, but you, you also, when you, when you mentioned, uh, just to talk about Alan Moore, and you mentioned his, his, his lost strip, you mentioned Skiz. I was surprised because I thought you were going to mention like one of my other all-time favorites, Dr. and Quinch. Oh right, <laughs> Dr. and Quinch is great fun. Yes. Mm-hmm. So What's yeah, DR tell us about, about Dr. And... So Dr. and Quinch started as one of these future shock stories. It was actually a time twister story. Dr. and Quinch hmm. are a couple of alien teenage. Um, I don't know what would you how would you describe them, Don? They're sort of <laughs> reprobates. Um, <laughs> That's teenage, yeah. <laughs> teenage delinquents with a thermonuclear capability, uh, drawn <laughs> by Alan Davis. And there's a number of stories of Dr. and Quinch adventures. It's just a comedy strip. It's a strip that Alan Moore has since disowned slightly Aww. because he thought it was. Um, that it was a bit too humorous about nuclear weapons and the fact that they're going around blowing up planets and so on all the time, um, or rearranging the geography of Earth yeah. so that it spells out an obscure insult in an alien language. Um, and it ends up with uh, possibly the pinnacle of the strip when DR and Quinch go to Hollywood to make a film. Um, oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and if I say to Don... Mind the oranges, Marlon. He'll know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> One of the great sorts of gags in the history of 2000 AD uh, is a complicated gag involving a um, film actor not unlike Marlon Brando and a huge pile of oranges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a very funny strip. It's being collected. It has the advantage also of having Alan Davis's beautiful artwork. Again, yeah. it's all black and white. Um, 
it's quite interesting because you can see in the first strip that it's early Alan Davis and he's still working out how to do things. And then by the time they get to DR and Quinch goes to Hollywood, it's just superb Alan Davis work who would do... Um, I mean, he drew Excalibur with the X-Men, mm-hmm. I think, uh, the Chris Claremont yes, series. Yeah, yeah, I remember I collected that. Right, and you're probably familiar with the run he did with Alan Moore on Captain Britain over here, which is uh, one of the all-time greats in British comics as well. Right. And introduced the character or the monster, the Fury, which became an X-Men monster, I think, or a bad guy. But yeah, Alan Moore and Alan Davis, the two Alans on DR and Quinch is great fun. That's hilarious stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't know he disowned it because it's great because it's not just like slapstick over the top violent humor there's extras because the the first story you mentioned they can destroy planets the first story is how they shape the entire history of the human race so that at in at the time their their base story takes place humanity is just joining this great intergalactic confederacy and the whole thing our entire race race was programmed essentially by them to develop space flight to join the Union because they went back in time and they blew up Pangea to arrange our continents. So they spell a particularly vile insult aimed at the judge, who was also one of the heads of the the Intergalactic Council, that sentenced them to, like, reform school so that when Earth was introduced into this confederacy, all through the confederacy, our planet, like a, a big map of our planet, would be shown as congratulatory and it spells this horrible insult and earth gets destroyed and they did it all just to cheese off the guy who sent them the prison <laughs> there see don summed it up better than i could dr and quinch um yeah it is available wow. as well and it is hilarious it's great fun yeah because there there were a few other comics during that 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 era because we're we're talking like that's like mid getting into the late 80s that 2080 did a lot of stuff because there were other characters that I liked that kind of came and went. Because I really liked Abelard Snaz. Yeah, another Adam Moore one, yes. And uh, they did, I only ever saw two stories of Haphazard and Tricky. Oh, right, yep. Yes. Uh, I mean, there's been, oh, you know, over 43 years, as you can imagine, it's had a huge catalogue of stories that have come and gone. Some of the staples like Dread and Strontium Dog, um, ABC Warriors have always been coming back. Slain, which is a sort of um, barbarian strip, but set in a uh, sort of recognisable Anglo-Irish type landscape. Slain Mm -hmm. keeps coming back. But they've also Mm -hmm. had all these little odd strips that have come and gone. Some of them very fondly remembered. Um, Some of them perhaps less so. But yeah, Haphazard has been there. Um, what else over the years? Uh, there's oh, a great there's been a bunch, Summer Magic, which was a, it's oh. like a teenage wizard um, story. Again, you know, before Harry Potter, there was Summer Magic. Luke mm-hmm. Kirby, the character in that. Um, what else? Bad Company, which is a sort of alien war future war um vietnam strip rogue trooper of course created by dave gibbons uh you know famous strip that ran for many many years so yeah there's been it's just got such a back catalogue really so many stuff 
um, too much almost for us to cover, really. Yeah, because that was that was again the early '80s seemed like. Well, I, I thought of that when they did the last Judge Dredd movie on the the DVD. They do interviews with people who did the comics and people who did the movie, and it's funny to see the contrast. Because the people who did the comics were talking about how every week everybody wanted to outdo everybody else. You're always writing crazier stories at weird characters. And then they get to the movie people who are like, yeah, so we got this like Mega City 1 thing and we were trying to figure out how to tone this down for a movie. And I'm like, no, don't do that. That's not what made them interesting. Well, it's interesting because they've got, as you know, we, you know, obviously we've got two movie versions of Judge Dredd to compare. We do. Uh, Just one. We, we pretend there's only one. <laughs> <laughs> so Sylvester Stallone's 1995, where most fans think they got Mega City One right. Yeah. Uh, the crazy mm-hmm. futuristic architecture, the crazy futuristic fashions and dresswear, and so on. But of course, Dread is Sylvester Stallone and has to take the helmet off. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then 2020 Dread, where. Um, I think most fans very happy with the redesign of the costume to make it look like something an actual film future cop would wear. And Carl Urban's performance mm-hmm. gets a lot of praise. But the Mega City One yeah. stuff, as you say, they had to scale it down. They had to keep saying to the, the writers, no, we can't afford that. We can't afford that. We'll make it look like um, you know a slightly run-down area of uh, Johannesburg um, yeah. instead. Um, because mm. it was filmed in, it was filmed in South Africa, I think, wasn't it? Um, but yeah, they had to scale it back because they didn't have the budget for it, sadly. Yeah, because the last movie wasn't bad. I remember watching it going that because uh, I was terrified after the Stallone one. Yeah, and it, and it was like, this is pretty good, this is pretty close. Nobody ever gets the bikes right for some reason, except the guys who did the Judge Minty film. And if they could do it, I don't know why a giant company can't, but. The thing that got me was this is pretty close until they got to that scene where the gang has the auto cannon and it's just mowing through the apartment. So I'm like going, oh, it's a Ron Smith Judge Dredd story. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a great artist that we haven't mentioned. Ron Smith, mm. the famous, uh, again, you know, Judge Dredd artist. He's the one with the, um, uh, Don will probably know this story. He's the one with the egg timer on his page rate. Oh. He'd worked out. <laughs> Uh, basically how long he had to do a page in order to make money out of it, how quickly he had to do them. And when the timer ran, right. that was it. The page was done and he would move on to the next one. Um, <laughs> and he'd flown he'd flown Spitfires, I think, in the RAF just after the World War II. Uh, so, yeah, wow. an amazing career. Sadly, he also passed away a couple of years ago, but he did a wonderful Judge Dredd. Mm-hmm. He's one of my favourite dread artists, Ron Smith. Yes, he does. He drew the crazy in Mega City One beautifully. He would do the yeah. crazy that they couldn't put in the in the Carl Urban movie, um, the weird punk aesthetic of the people and the clothes and the and the city. And he had this this the detail was astounding because, like I've, I've mentioned on the show a few times. He would do like a scene where it'd be like a hundred car pileup. And not only would he draw all hundred cars in one panel, he'd draw every injured person and, and all of their injuries and the horrified looks on the faces of every single person. And you're like, how does this guy do this without going nuts and opening a vein? Jeez. <laughs> yeah, incredibly detailed work. Um, do look at some Ron Smith Judge Dredd work in the Mega City one. It's just, uh, it is stunning stuff. The amount of detail, as you say, he puts in there. 
um, the lines on each page, and yet he was working to the clock. It was amazing. Yeah, because that was the 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 thing I'd heard with uh, the problem at Boland was that Brian Boland wasn't good at deadlines, and uh, Carlos Esquivel was like the only guy that he was a machine that he could meet the deadlines and then do extra. So Carlos was great. He could always meet the deadlines. Brian Boland, as you say, more suited to being a cover artist because he couldn't mm. he couldn't uh, keep up with the sort of like the deadline of a weekly comic, five pages a week. Um, although he mm-hmm. does do some of the most recognisable moments in Judge Dredd, um, including, of course, the famous gaze into the Fist of yeah. Dread panel where <laughs> Dredd is punching through the back of the helmet of a character <laughs> called Judge Fear, one of the dark judges. Um, possibly the most yeah. famous panel in the history of British comics, that one, I should imagine. Um, but you're, you're familiar <laughs> with that. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, Yes. Even I know that one. Yeah, that's it's pretty famous everywhere because I yeah. think there are T-shirts with that thing on it. There are T-shirts. I've got one of them myself. Yes. <laughs> Gaze into the fist of dread. Yep. Yeah. Uh, there we go. Okay. Because actually, here's a question. Sorry, if, sorry to interrupt for a moment, but so British comic artists were they when they're doing these weekly strips? Are they doing them by themselves? Are do they have assistants helping them with this? How does the process for doing a weekly comic work? I know how it works for the Japanese, where they have a whole team working on them. But were the British guys doing it by themselves for the most part? Mostly by themselves. The idea of a penciler and then an inker in British comics were, is pretty uncommon or was pretty uncommon. Most artists were doing the whole process from sort of like layouts to finished art themselves. Of course, it helped that at the time the majority of British art was still black and white, so there wasn't a colourist involved. Um, and even then, when you did get the colours involved, it would often be... For instance, the lettering artist would do the mm-hmm. colours, but Bolland and Ascara and Smith, McMahon, um, people like that would do their own pencils and inks, the whole thing, basically. They were the, the, the whole from start to finish artist. Um, I think in recent years, you've seen a bit more branching out and they do have some strips where it's pencil and artist. But still, I think... I'm just thinking about the Judge Dredd magazine and the 2000 AD. I think most of it is still, it might be an artist and a colorist these days, but not a penciler mm. and an inker. Hmm. Yeah, they don't they don't credit them. Uh, usually for like art, you might see two names in some of them. Yes, that's right. And it'd just be the colorist will be the other name. And, of course, we have these credit cards on 2000 AD strips which give you the details of the writer and the artist. And they were another Kevin O'Neill um, creation. Mm. Um, again, before 2000 AD, it was very uncommon for British comics to have um, the creators' names in them. And there was this long assumption from the two publishers, the big two, that if you published people's names, fans would become aware of them and that would push their prices up. But also other companies would know who they had to uh, come and steal. Um, (laughs) And so there was an awful lot of resistance to putting creator names on stuff. And it was Kev O'Neill who did it one week on 2000 AD and it stuck quite early on, about issue 35, I believe it is, uh, and it's stuck and has been there ever since. 
Uh, and interestingly, that leads to some of the sort of creator rights issues that we've had over this side of the pond as well about, you know, getting back your artwork and uh, getting to own your characters and own your stories rather than just being work for hire. But that's, you know, that's a story that's familiar to comic book creators the world over, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, pretty much, except Japan, oddly enough. Oh, um, right. In Japan, yeah. by default, they actually own their own, the copyrights to their work, even when they're working for a big company. The Japanese right. did that for whatever weird reason. So the top-selling Japanese comics are all still owned by their creators. The right. company is basically just kind of like... Le now, every now and then, the Japanese copyright law, they've tried to change it so that the companies get part ownership, and that usually gets shot down very quickly. <laughs> right. But I think they're the only country I know of on Earth that does that. The rest of the country, America, Canada you know, the UK, etc. No, it's all work for hire. The company owns it. And interestingly, Pat Mills, who creates 2000 AD and is still writing as we speak, he's still doing slain in the pages of 2000 AD. Um, I think Richard mm -hmm. Chief also mentioned that Pat Mills does a lot of writing for French comics. He does a mm -hmm. uh, strip called Requiem Vampire Night, I think it's called. And he often says about the different deal he gets, about how much more ownership and control he has of the French comic than he does of the British comic that he helped create, which is uh, ironic. So, yeah, strange situations. Mm. Huh. Yeah, yeah, okay. It, it's, a, it's very unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. Okay. Um, so what were some of the... Like, are there great eras of 2080? Obviously, the 80s has come up many times. Seems to be 2080's great era. Is there a big difference between 2080 of the 80s and of the 90s, of the aughts, and of the of the teens? Like, over the last, like, 40 years it's been running, how has it shifted? So, I mean, you know, as we say, the golden age was in the 80s when Dread, Strontium Dog, Rogue Trooper, uh, mm -hmm. Slain, stories like that were really at their peak of popularity and of quality you had all these great creators working on the comic many of whom would go as part of the British invasion would go and work for North American comics and so we'd see less of them mm -hmm. um, does it change yes I think in the 90s it tried very hard to grow up with its fans and it made some it made some stumbles, you know, things went badly in the 90s for a lot of comics the world over. Um, mm -hmm. And some of the strips, you know, were not so well remembered from the 90s. And it did look like a few times that 2018 might be limping towards the grave. And of course, it was also being changing hands. The publishers were changing it even went into the ownership of a chap called Robert Maxwell. I don't know if you're familiar with Robert Maxwell across the no, pond. No, not at all. So he he's dead now. He was like um, he's like Logan Roy from Succession. He was mm -hmm. a media tycoon who, after his death, it turned out he'd been robbing the pension plans of all his employees. Of course, uh, <laughs> Ghislaine Maxwell, who's currently in prison for yes, that's his daughter. So. Uh, oh, that's his daughter. Okay, yes. okay. So, um, wow. yeah. So, so, so it runs in the family. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so Maxwell owned the publishers for a while, and that, of course, went particularly badly. It wasn't until, as you say, they found 
safe harbour rebellion in the 2000s in the aughts that uh, it looked like or it became clear that 2000 AD was going to sort of survive and golden ages um, there was a a patch about I don't know what it was 10 years ago maybe that uh, maybe less than that where it really went through a great period of stories um, it produced one of those great um, how on earth did they do that moments in a Judge Dredd story called Trifecta. I don't know if you've heard or come across that one, Don. Which one was that? So this is, I'll, I'll spoilers, this is basically where they crossed over the Dredd story into um, the other strips running at the same time in the comic. But they didn't tell anybody that was going to happen. They managed to keep it a secret and it's literally when the end of one Judge Dredd strip where he kicks down a door and the next strip starts and the door is being kicked down into the apartment and you realise, hang on a minute, this is literally breaking through the walls of the comic, as it were. Um, so there was a particularly spectacular period for 2000 AD. And, you know, they've kept it going. Matt Smith, who's been editor now for about 20 years. I think he, well, he is the longest running editor on 2000 AD. He also edits the Judge Dredd magazine and he's kept it going and um, they've produced some great work and some, you know, great new talent. And it's amazing that it still continues. Um, it seems to be riding out the storm of COVID. They've done very well out of digital sales, I think, uh, as a lot of companies have. The fact that they've got this huge back catalogue because also uh, Rebellion as a company, um, I think uh, Richard talked about this a little bit. Rebellion bought mm. all the back catalogue of the company IPC. So they don't just own the 2000 AD back catalogue. They own all these other comics, the new um, Speed, uh, Tornado, Star-Lord, battle so all these other great strips that people just only sort of vaguely remember from their childhood are being brought back to us in lovely collections and reprints um we're finding out about some great but little known comic book creators from the 70s and 80s and so on uh and the 60s um who you know because names weren't known at the time people didn't really celebrate them they could walk down you know, they could presumably have walked down the aisles at a comic book convention when we used to have those and nobody would have known who they were. But they produced wonderful work. Uh, Richard, I think, talked about the Trigon Empire um, by an artist called Don Lawrence. Beautiful stuff. Absolutely gorgeous artwork from the 1960s and 70s. So, yeah, mm. Rebellion um, have got a bit of a golden age on their hands now, largely because they've got this wonderful back catalogue and they're busy selecting titles from the archives cleaning them up uh and bringing them out in collections which are some of which are just absolutely glorious to behold yeah fantastic i was was wondering that because i was looking at like their website a while ago and they brought back they did like a collection of roy of the rovers i think so roy of the rovers um you know he's probably on the british comics uh mount rushmore along with dread and dan dare <laughs> roy of the rovers the longest running sort of soccer strip over here 
Um, he, you know, Roy of the Rovers is a catchphrase over here now. Every, you know, even people who've never picked up a comic in their life know who Roy of the Rovers is. Oh, wow. And yes, Rebellion now own Roy of the Rovers. They've reprinted uh, lots of stuff, and they've also now they've rebooted it for a modern, younger audience. And they're putting out oh. new Roy of the Rovers comics. They've taken him literally back to his teenage years as a. Um, you know, on trial with a local club and starting to work his way up towards the first team. So, yeah, Roy of the Rovers is um, terrific um, and such a huge catalogue of stories they've got there. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. that's, that's one of the weird things about comic books, Britain especially, everywhere else on Earth too, but not North America, is the idea of the sports comic. Like, we never really had any big hit sports comics in North America, but you look at British comics and there are tons of them. There were whole comics devoted to anthologies of sports titles and a lot of those, you know, seemed to be surfing the wave, but never went away. They just kept going. Mm -hmm. And uh, Billy's Boots, which Richard Sheaf is very fond of, uh, Hotshot Hamish, um, but there were so many of them. And then Roy of the Rovers is the giant of them. Uh, but also we would have comics about um, middle-distance runners. I'm very fond of a 1960s comic called The Tough of the Track, which was about a guy who basically um, had to win a race every week. It's the same thing, you know, the same mm -hmm. trope, mm -hmm. do it over and over again. But, yeah, comics about runners, girls' comics about hockey and lacrosse were very popular, um, and football... Not so much rugby over, over in terms of comic books, but football, soccer comics, hugely popular. And again popular now with the, the rebirth of Roy of the Rovers. But yeah, not a North American thing so much. Um, I suppose the, the one, you know, the thing the British comics don't do very often is the superhero comic. We have less of those and we have more sporting superheroes and sporting superstars. Um, a British editor called Barry Tomlinson, who also wrote uh, Roy of the Rovers and other sports comics, he would always be getting the famous sports personalities of the time to appear on the front cover. Often they'd have them appearing next to a large cardboard standee cutout of Roy of the Rovers, as if they were actually meeting Roy of the Rovers <laughs> themselves. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, it, you know, sports commentators over here, if a team of underdogs are coming back in the last half of the game to win, they would describe, they still describe it as Roy, real Roy of the Rovers stuff. Oh, wow. Um, it's just become, a, you know, um, part of the culture. Huh. That's okay. I, I hadn't realized that. that uh, I knew Roy of the Rovers was popular, but I didn't realize that how big a part of the British culture it is, really. Huh. Yeah, absolutely. I, 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 would, I would predict that just about anybody you speak to in the street will probably have heard of Roy of the Rovers, even though they won't know he's from a comic or whatever. Um, yeah, he's become a huge thing. So yeah, Dan Dare, Judge Dredd, Roy of the Rovers, probably somebody like Desperate Dan from one of the humour strips would be on the, um, the British comics uh, Mount Rushmore, I guess. Who is Desperate Dan? Oh, he's from one of the sort of... Um, the comedy comics like the monster fun he's from the beano um ah okay 
and he's you know again a long running uh, he's a sort of cowboy strongman hero um whose ridiculous strength often gets him into trouble basically um you know he's a bit like the obelix character in the asterix and obelix cartoons and comic books right yeah okay a bit like monster fun as rich described you know it's that sort of um the funny page is the, the British humour comic, uh, always been popular as well, to have mm-hmm. like an entire anthology comic basically um, filled with one or two page gag strips the whole time. Okay, makes sense, makes sense. <laughs> I know, Was there anything com- else? Is, you know mm-hmm. lo- geographical and local comic ver- varieties is a weird thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It, it is. It absolutely well. Again, you you're. It's never ceases to amaze me how different our UK and North American culture really is from each other. Even though we have the same roots, well, your our roots. Um, it's amazing how divergent things have become, and yeah. and it is interesting how. But it's how even even that being true, how much closer, say, Australia. What little I know, I know of Australia and New Zealand uh, comics. I don't. I know very little about the subject, but what little I know is seems to be that they seem to be have gotten the the UK comics down there, but they seem to have mostly like we did get bunches as Don was talking about little batches, but they mostly bypassed us. Like the only my exposure when I was young to UK comics was pretty much limited to in the bookstores. I would see annuals, so I would see like uh, Bino Annual, for example, or the, you know these hardback annuals in the bookstores, and that's all I ever saw when I was young. Yeah, and and that was pretty much my entire exposure to British comics. I thought these are weird, <laughs> and that was pretty much it. Whereas, it, from what I can tell, because I noticed that on a lot of British comics, they'll have a price for the UK, uh, maybe a price for Ireland, then there'll be a price for New Zealand and Australia, and maybe Singapore. Or something like that, but there'll be no price for Canada or the United States. Yes, and I've had guests from New Zealand and Australia who would used to get the comics and the annuals, particularly the annuals. Okay, really? Um, uh, You know, uh, British comic annuals, again, slightly different to North American comic annuals. The British comic annual would come out just before Christmas and it would be hardback. Uh, Mm -hmm. It would be a sort of magazine sized hardback. And every British kid would find an annual in their Christmas stocking. And it would either be from their comic or it might be from their TV show that they followed. So things Mm -hmm. like Doctor Who would have one or the Six Million Dollar Man would have one. Um, And then, you know, more recently, all the various animes and cartoons would have one. And they still do to a certain extent. And then we'd also mm. get summer specials, and they might have reached your shores as well. And, you know, both of them, the Christmas annual and the summer special, all designed to do the same thing, which was basically something to give the kids <laughs> when you're on holiday right. or when it's that, you know, Christmas period and you want them to um, sit and look at a book for a while and not bother you. Uh, right. Uh, you know the summer special for when you're on those long car trips and you want the kids to shut up in the back give them the summer special um yeah but yeah the the, the weird thing some of them sense, creep, yes yeah it does doesn't it some of them would creep through to other countries but north america not so much i think yeah we where, where i live was a little different because we'd get the the annuals you could get regularly because they'd be um sold to bookstores but yeah. Win- Windsor used to have a lot of like magazine 
and newspaper stores that imported a lot. And that was why we'd get them but couldn't get them regularly. Because I remember when I was in like high school, we used to go and pick up, it was a newspaper, I think it was out of Scotland, that we used to get the Scottish newspaper just because it had the Judge Dredd comic strip in it. Oh, right. Yeah, Dredd made the uh, the jump to a newspaper strip for quite some time over here. And uh, they've also been collected. They've been found. They've been collected in two lovely hardback volumes, which are laid out in a sort of landscape format because of the newspaper strip um, sort of, you know, setting. Uh, but again, that was a bit of a job to find those. I know the ed- one of the editors had to go to the British Library and go through newspaper archives and newspaper libraries to find the old strips and photocopy them and then get them cleaned up but yeah then there's so the the scottish paper would arrive and that would have it in it for you would it Mm -hmm. that's great stuff and then they couldn't figure out why all of these like 14 and 15 year olds were so interested in a newspaper from the other side of the world kind of but yeah it was because we wanted the comics (laughs) yeah give us the comic exactly give us the funny pages yeah Huh. I, I had no idea. Um, I've never... Uh, I, I didn't know that uh, Dread was actually used as a newspaper strip, but I could totally see it. I can totally see it. And they famously I, did the six-month story, The Apocalypse War. Uh, they did it, I think, in about five panels in the newspaper strip. <laughs> I didn't see that one. Yeah. <laughs> They did it as five panels. Yep, they did the whole apocalypse war in about five panels. Um, yeah, took six months in the in the regular comic, of six <laughs> months of weekly issues to do it. Carlos Escara drawing the whole thing, and uh, yeah. Of course, that 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 seems in character because um, as a kid, I didn't read like a lot of the the, the superheroes in that because we would get comics from like from like Europe from France from Belgium, from, from Britain. We used to get some South America. So I used to like those more than the American ones, because especially the British ones, every week you've got to tell a full story in like five pages. So they just move. And I always thought the American superhero stuff, it would drag on because you get like two pages of the character moping about how his best friend was in a car. At you. Yeah, we we know. Get to the Get to the fight scene or something. It still happens in 2000 AD. I mean, they have slightly more space in the Judge Dredd magazine, which is monthly. But mm-hmm. 2000 AD is still weekly, still mostly five pages. Uh, Dredd gets six pages. And as Richard said uh, last time, it's like, you know, you've got two pages to resolve. Uh, last time's cliffhanger, you've got two pages to move things on and you've got one page to set up something for next time. Um, yeah, it's a quite quite a pace, and I think decompressing some of that into trade collections has been a challenge, um, and make, can make them feel a little bit jumpy. Or others where you feel, oh, they've written this for the trade. You've written this for a slightly longer form read. Um, but yeah, still happens every week. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now, why? At what point did? The Judge Dredd magazine split off from 2000 AD. What's the story there? So um, Judge Dredd was the runaway success of 2000 AD. And they'd long had the idea of trying to sort of, again, do the Star-Lord thing, try and build on that success. 
and get a Judge Dredd mm. comic started. It didn't happen until 1990. Uh, Steve McManus, the editor, comes back from his sabbatical and gets the go-ahead to do a separate Judge Dredd title, which will be monthly, which will have new strips. It will have an element of creator-controlled strips, so that would keep... Mm some of the big names on board, some of the people like John Wagner who were perhaps threatening to, you know, go to entirely to North American comics where they would have more control. Um, and so mm. that came out in 1990 and it's been published more or less monthly ever since and it's still going. It does, it does do that thing which any editor, I think, has to do from time to time, which is... We'll do some reprint material. We'll put some articles and interviews in there because they're probably cheaper than commissioning pages of artwork and so on. So, it, but it, and it also it puts out a sort of reprint floppy of some of these lesser uh, stories from the back catalogue every month as well. So that it is, it is interesting. It's also famously the the magazine where the Judge Dread story America started and finished. Mm. Um, so they launched the magazine back in 1990 with this story, America. Often, mm -hmm. uh, Don will know, this is often mentioned as one of the best, if not the best, Judge Dredd story of all time. Although, interestingly, a story that he's not in very much, but uh, it's a great story about the city and um, about how it perhaps grinds down and crushes ordinary people. Um, it's a terrific story, America. Hmm. It's it's oh. it's it's another one like I find it so weird. It's it is really good. It's it's not one of my favorites. Although I kind of thought the follow up was a little better because again, America's it's the sort of it, it builds on stuff they touched on because yeah you mentioned the nineties was a down period. What mm -hmm. we kind what we kind of noticed for a lot of the two thousand eighties and and the dread because all of the the guys here were huge dread fans. It looked like they were trying to kind of, I know they were aging things up, but they were trying to do some some kind of like more, I guess, stories with literary worth, not just action and, and innovation. And they started going that route, like that was um, for Dread. They were commenting on him getting old. And we noticed that was when they were talking about Eastwood playing him in the first movie, which couldn't have been any worse. But... They they did that and it they were doing like the uh, the democracy now storyline and America kind of builds on that and I thought it was interesting but kind of touching on stuff they'd done until they did the follow up and I don't want to give it away but with what happens to her and her friend the musician after that story I thought that was kind of much more in spirit because it had some odd twists that catch you way off guard. It does indeed have some twists. And again, I think the three America stories altogether, they've been collected. Um, and last year they yeah. put out the uh, a script book as well, John Wagner's scripts alongside mm -hmm. Colin McNeil's art, painted artwork for it. Um, but yeah, it is interesting what they do with the singer and uh, America. And of course... Um, their child is now a major character in the Judge Dread strip, um, Judge Beanie. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. Because <laughs> oh, you you'd mentioned in in in, in your one email 
another dread story that came out recently that is the one that i recommend to anybody who wants to get into it was uh origins the 30th anniversary story uh yeah. great cover by brian bolland um carlos Sascara again on art john wagner writing and dread going back into the cursed earth um in search of the origins of the Justice Department of Mega City One, uh, the judges telling the backstory, um, a demented, crazed uh, former president who's a complete um, danger to all those around him. I can't think, you know, why that would be relevant. Um, yeah, Origins is a great story. That, again, beautifully collected, really tells you a lot about the backstory of Dread, but also a lot about what modern Dread is like himself. Um, mm. And Dred's band of followers, you know, the judges who are who meet his strict criteria and get to go with him on missions. Um, yeah, that's a terrific story. Well worth handing to anybody. Because the the magazine seemed like it was it was meant to do that, wasn't it? That they they were looking to do. I guess I hate use the word mature because that puts in people in mind of gratuitousness. But they were trying to do the kind of the more intellectual, the more thought-provoking stories, what, what, like for, for like an older crowd. Is that kind of the idea? Or? Oh, uh, yeah, very much so. It was meant to be that grown-up uh, Dread magazine that they'd always wanted to do, that John Wagner, I think, wanted to do. He wanted, he wanted more space. I think he wanted more room to develop Dread and his world and tell these more complicated stories rather than just, you know... There's a criminal. They find him. They shoot him, or put him in the in the icy <laughs> cubes. Um, and so that's what happened. I think you get uh, some of these great stories appear in the magazine over the years. Some of it, you know, some of it's less so. Um, they attempted a crossover story that meant you both had to read both the magazine and the 2000 ED at the same time, mm. which was variable in quality. Although it did have great Carlos art again, but yeah, John Wagner, I think, uh, got to sort of stretch his legs in the pages of the magazine and write those much more complicated dread world stories the reason i think that you know dread's still relevant and still an interesting character even though he's a fascist future cop um you know is because i think they've allowed these more mature stories to take over there were a couple other ones over the years too that it looked like they tried doing the same because I know it was um, the two I can think of was they did the uh, the new Rogue Trooper in the nineties that looked like they were going that way and they uh, when they brought back the ABC Warriors. So the ABC Warriors have been brought back a few times again with Pat Mills mm -hmm. and a variety of different artists. Uh, the ABC Warriors, also known as the Magnificent Seven, so that probably tells you how it starts. Yeah. <laughs> it's the Magnificent Seven in space with robots. Um, but right. yeah, again, uh, Pat Mills with his um, searing look at uh, politics and environmental issues and social issues and exploitation of workforces or robot workforces or robot soldiers... Uh, he's really matured that strip up from just robots hitting each other. Um, yeah, and then Rogue Trooper, they tried, they they brought that back again. It was a Dave Gibbons idea to re to reboot the strip. Um, 
partly landed, but, you know, didn't get the lasting effect that perhaps they wanted. Um, but they've done it on other strips over the years as well. I mean, Strontium Dog became a much more complicated story about revenge and about um, the exploitation of mutants. It's interesting, both sides of the pond, that the mutant idea was used as a sort of analogy for discrimination and uh, persecution mm. of minorities. Um, over here, John Wagner and Alan Grant write in Strontium <laughs> Dog, where the lead character, Johnny Alpha, is a mutant. And the only job he's allowed to have is, the, is to be a bounty hunter because mutants are a persecuted minority. And his father turns out, of course, in the strip to be uh, the leader of the political party who are trying to exterminate all mutants. Um, <laughs> so that becomes, you know, and it has always been over the years a sort of um, powerful, I suppose, political metaphor about discrimination and abuse. Mm -hmm. that was something though that it seems like uh when you get to the late 80s going to the 90s that a lot of british comics in general they got a lot more political than than they did here because i'm thinking of uh what was it the new statesman new statesman yes in crisis um and third world war again yeah Pat mills and carlos escara yeah very political stuff um very hard-hitting stuff comics that again tried to give creator control these were creator owned titles they would take a very harsh look at the politics of the time the after effects of thatcherism and reaganism stuff like that yeah um it got very very political um you know perhaps they overdid it in places i don't know but it's still you still feel that political edge in a lot of 2000 AD today. Yeah, and and I think that was one of the things, like, uh, I've recently been able to read some of the, uh, the newer stuff, and it really looks like that helped because they found their footing because what a lot of the stories, especially, like, again, I'm a huge Dread fan, after Origins, they've worked kind of that political thing in where it's no longer, like, parody and satire, but it's become good, solid world building, and you're getting these stories that are still action oriented, but they're thinking it through a lot more, and it does it feels like an actual crazy kind of world that could exist, and you're getting good, solid, and again, I don't want to say mature, but I can't think of a better term for it, kind of material coming out of that. Yeah, I mean, I I love what Wagner has done with uh, Dread since he came back to it and he's been writing it over the years i love stories um from the last 10 or 15 years like the tour of duty story which was that mm. political it's a sort of game of thrones intrigue in the ranks of the judges who control mega city one um there's a a judge who seems to be very good at sort of manipulating his way to the top he's a bit like a little finger or something like that um and of course he comes into conflict with dread it leads to dread being temporarily exiled again back to the cursed earth to, to sort of supervise the mutant camps again they had the whole issue of the mutant population of mega city one being expelled beyond the city wall and forced to set up townships in the cursed earth so that you can see that sort of like the political relevance of that the satire the 
the the sharp edges of it all you know when you look at modern life yeah it it, it also seems one of the things that we never because we've never north american comics a lot of except for some of the undergrounds that tried doing that and it never quite sticks it's interesting a lot of the the british stuff especially the british sci-fi seems to really empathize with like the the working class people because you mentioned the exploitation that was um shoot they brought back flesh and it really kind of had that feel that there were a lot of these characters that they kind of felt like um they took this job because they're i guess the term would be dead enders and this is it for them but it really does seem to sympathize more with the little guy than with the big the, the big organization or, or society at large always seems to be the villain more than the hero in these stories and pat mills would be very pleased to hear you say that pat mills <laughs> uh you know so a counterculture anti-authority type um you know very strong views on this sort of stuff has always seen british comics as working class comics um, has always seen this as being, you know, representing the stories of the little guy against the uh, powerful, whether it's the church in something like Nemesis, mm. the warlock, or whether it's um, corporations in ABC Warriors. Um, and yeah, he's always been very fond of that, that, uh, you know, felt that was really important. And of course, I think Richard probably talked to you about his famous war strip from the First World War, Charlie's War. Oh, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. And again, this working class lad who goes off to fight and finds it's not exactly or at all what he was expecting. It's uh, the First World War. It's the horrors. Yeah. Yeah, because we, we never got the, the hang of that either. Because one of the other things I find that mentality seems to do is a lot of these stories, and this goes back to, say, Halo Jones and, and even the Haphazard, there's a lot more stories that are good at grasping the life of the character. Like, a lot of our characters, they're always tense. They're always fighting. They pay lip service to going out to dinner, but then it gets interrupted by the bad guys attacking. So they don't have, like, a normal life. Whereas even something like I'm thinking the, the Judge Dreads when they started getting into the idea of him getting older, they did a lot of stories about Dreads averaging. There's one where he's in the bathtub and people are trying to break into his apartment while he's having a bath. And it's those weird little ordinary person touches that I think adds to a lot of the stuff from, from the, the British comics, especially the sci-fi that we don't get here in North America. Hmm. And there's a strip, there's a Judge Dredd uh, long-running story called The Pit, again by Wagner mm. and Carlos Escara, where you got that. You got these moments of the other judges and you got to learn about their characteristics and their, their foibles, their weaknesses. You'd see them in the locker room. It had that sort of police uh, precinct procedural sort of feel to it and they all had their own slight weaknesses and flaws and dread would be able to work these out and there's also there's an ongoing investigation there's corruption um and you'd see you get to see them instead of just being the badge and the helmet and the leather uniform you started to see a bit more of the sort of ordinary characters of these people um John Wagner, I think, masters of that. But yes, he also, I think, like Pat Mills, he sees the importance of telling the stories uh, of the little guy, the citizen or the judge, you know, the guy who perhaps yeah. is not all, not quite what they see. 
Now, are there other series in 2000 AD that you'd like to see that kind of thing done with? Uh, what, like to see more of the little guy or the sort of political aspects of it, or... Or, or even like a more mature version of kind of thing. Um, it'd be interesting to see if they could do something like that with a reboot of Robo Hunter, which was always a sort of comedy strip oh. about tracking down rogue robots. Um, a slightly humorous sort of Blade Runner, I suppose. Um, mm. But they've done they've done very sharp and edgy strips in the last 10 20 years which i think are up there in terms of you know giving this working class perspective on uh, adventure stories or horror stories or space stories um you know scarlet traces where ian edgerton and an artist called disraeli tell the story of what happened when the british empire got all the Martian technology that was left over after the War of the Worlds and used it to shore up the empire. But that starts with a very sort of uh, down and gritty murder story, um, which takes place, is, takes place in the slums of London and the slums, I think, of Glasgow. Um, so that, was, that sort of stuff's great. Um, it does still happen. It's still, I think, very much a feature of 2080 that it is still sharp it's political it's relevant um mm -hmm. it tries very hard to be it sort of you know lives up to some of the ideals that pat mills set for it for your podcast have you ever had the chance to interview pat mills i haven't had pat mills on my podcast i've i did look was lucky enough to have steve mcmanus on uh pat mills mm -hmm. would be one of the you know uh, great ones to get although he does pop up on podcasts uh, i can I can share a few that he's been on recently where you can hear him talking about this stuff. Steve McManus was great to have on talking about the golden period of the 1980s um, where he, you know, he'd originally worked on action comic and then he goes on to edit 2000 AD. Um, and I've been lucky enough to get some of the artists and writers. Uh, the episode about Alan Grant's detective comics is with a, a writer called James Peaty, who's written... Uh, for 2000 AD, he's written for Doctor Who, he's written Supergirl and, and other um, mm -hmm. North American titles. Uh, Chris Weston is a great artist who was on the podcast, again, talking about this Trigon Empire book uh, because he actually mm -hmm. studied with the artist Don Lawrence. He was apprenticed to him for a while, so that's fascinating. But Pat Mills, no, I've, I've still got to get Pat Mills. Uncle Pat, come on the show. <laughs> I'm sure that would be great. Uh, okay. And because uh, I'd, be, I'd be curious what Pat Mills thinks of all these things. So, yes, if you can uh, send me the links, I'll actually include them in the show notes about uh, some of the other interviews he's done so that people can go and actually hear what uh, Uncle Pat has to say. Because <laughs> to us, that would be like, he's just passed, of course, but it'd be like hearing an interview with Stan Lee talking about, you know, the comics eras of his time. Yes, and he is. I mean, he is like one of the major figures in British comics of the last fifty years. Is Pat Mills, and he's still going strong. He's still producing comics, and he's still railing against authority and against <laughs> the against the man. And yeah, more power to him. You can see him on the Future Shock documentary about two thousand AD, um, literally sticking his finger up to authority. So <laughs> we're not ripping off popular culture, apparently. That 
<laughs> well, I mean, that was the that was the thing for British comics was rip off some pop culture and make it into a comic right. strip. Yeah, but just give it a slightly different name, a different format, so that nobody will right. know. Now, were you old enough that when Action came out that you were actually collecting and reading comics at that point? Uh, I never I never came across Action for some reason. I was too busy, too obsessed with the Marvel UK stuff at the time. Ah. So I didn't, never actually bought Action. I was not aware of it. I don't even remember the famous episode where an issue was torn up on the national news um, by a presenter who was giving the publisher a hard time about it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I only come. I only learned about the outcry of that later on. <laughs> no, I just uh, I I'd be curious as to what it was like to live during that era, or what what uh, you know what the, we know what the media's reaction was, but what you know how the average comic fan of that era felt about that when uh, when action suddenly became the focus of all this uh, intense scrutiny. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Yes. For, for us, it would be similar. To, Don, did the Punisher have a similar reaction back in the day? Like, I vaguely remember something about no. the Punisher having some media press. No, the, the, the Punisher here was what began the death of our comic industry. He got some press. There was a little bit of grumbling that he's a superhero that actually shoots people. But the Punisher mm. was the one that started the whole, and old issues are worth mm. money. And that's what the news articles here focused on. And they they didn't get too much they, they there was a mention of the controversy but it was very slight um the action thing is probably more akin to our satanic panic in the 80s okay okay well they yes. but they had their own panic too i remember richard talked about that where they had their own satanic panic kind of sort of, well no they had their own uh seduction of the innocent moment um your comics were evil mm-hmm. because they were destroying kids minds but um, you're right. I guess that would be yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess you're right. That would be kind of the the uh, the satanic panic moment for comics. Yeah. For UK yeah, comics. We've done. We have done that to the evil of comics from at various times. Yeah. Well, comics are evil yeah. after all, so that's natural. <laughs> the, the good ones are <laughs> the best. Are exactly. Yeah. So, because yeah, it's, it's we we did that here. We did ours in like the fifties, and that was kind of the big comics are evil but it 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 comes around it's 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 so odd yeah you, you, you mentioned how the, the british comics would would capitalize on a trend when you get to the 70s that was the same thing we were doing here and i'm reminded of like a Mar- marvel was big on that whatever was going on because i'm thinking there was a character he appeared in their magazines because that was the other weird thing is Every comic publisher in like the 70s and going into the 80s wanted to do heavy metal. And Marvel did it. They did their black and white magazines. Mm-hmm. And there was a character. It was it was a ripoff of like all like the Omen and the Exorcist. He was like a priest with like an eye patch. And he looked like like Nick Fury's angrier brother. And and again, it was it was like a, a, a ripoff of, of movies like The Exorcist and that. You, you can see you can see tons. Hmm. Of, of that dc did um when they did commandy in the 70s that was very planet of the apes inspired except oh yes yeah yeah it, it wasn't apes it was all animals and it's funny that i don't know if kirby came up with it first or not but the idea in, in the commandy the dc future at the time was it was a drug that mutated the animals and planet of the apes you get to i think the third movie or the fourth no it was the fourth where it was like an operation that did it because all the regular pets died and it was only the, the hominids that survived. 
I remember that. Yes, yes, yes that was one of the Planet of the Apes movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because that idea, like one of the things I only found out about uh, action uh, like a few years ago, and I've been infatuated with it ever mm-hmm. since. <laughs> is is that was the action shtick? Was they took what was popular, made a copy, and then just amped the violence up to twelve on Absolutely, it. Absolutely, yeah. And it was so beautiful and glorious, and and yeah, finding out that that kind of that was kind of the the setup for 2000 AD, which was take the weirdness, take the wackiness, take the irreverence and the violence, and then crank them up to 13 and throw in a robot and let's see what happens. Are you familiar with a podcast called Space Spinner 2000? No, no. So Space Spinner 2000 is a 2000 AD podcast where two American guys are trying to make sense of 2000 AD by reading one month of progs at a time right the way from the start. But they've also done a Space Spinner reaction series where they went through every issue of Action Comics. Really? Um, oh, wow. It, to- it talked about the violence and the <laughs> gore in Hookjaw and uh, Leave It to Lefty, the football hooligan story and so on. So, yeah, that, that's worth checking out. Oh, yes. Yeah, I got to see that because <laughs> yeah, the violence in Hookjaw, everybody thinks it's a shark eating people. No, in one story, he doesn't eat the guy. He runs into them, the guy so hard, the guy explodes. And it's a full panel of, like, parts and limbs flying everywhere. <laughs> Uh, good family reading. Plane at one time. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's it's funny to see too, because um, 2000 AD is kind of the, the 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 first British comic that I read that I guess I'd had any structure to it. And it's in, that a lot of the guys that worked on it had actually been working in comics for for a bit. And when I start seeing some of these these older stories. Like not story uh, older comics, you see these guys turn up, and um, what would the workload for these guys be like? And were they making a good living doing this, or was this just something you had to do out of love? I think. Well, I mean, a lot of them just loved it. A lot of them just wanted to draw comics, uh, and often said they didn't want to do books, they didn't want to do films, they just wanted to do comics. Um, a lot of them, I think, wanted to break into North American comics and did, and they succeeded. Um, but yeah, you know, it, the, the odd subject of how much comic book artists and creators get paid has always been one of those shrouded in mysteries. Um, <laughs> you know, and not, as you know, as somebody else said to me, they're not all Todd McFarlane. You know, they don't all end mm. up with uh, the millions. Um, mm. But yeah, it's an interesting subject. And Action Comic, if anybody's interested, Rebellion owned that. And last year, 2020, they did put out a modern action special, which you can buy digitally from the uh, 2000 AD web shop, um, which included sort of modern takes on several of these old stories, including Hookjaw, uh, where all the gore was there in full Technicolor. <laughs> <laughs> Right. That would definitely be worth reading. <laughs> it is, yes, it's terrific. Uh, okay, Don, was there any other questions you uh, had for Amon? I have one that's bothered me for like 35 years, okay. and I'm wondering if you can answer it. No pressure. In the cursed, 
Yeah, in in the Cursed Earth storyline, they have the Land Raider. Yes. Matchbox did a toy of of the Land Raider for their Adventure 2000 line. It came out roughly the same time, and I'm wondering, is there a connection to that, or did um did they just use that design in the comic? And if so, how did they not get sued? Now I've got one on the shelf in front of me. I can see the 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 Matchbox uh, model in front of me, and you're quite right. It was in the Cursed Earth. I think Mick McMahon just drew it into the script. I think it was intended that there was going to be a tie-in, which never actually happened. So I think that's why they didn't get sued. I think it was intended by Matchbox. But uh, yeah, I believe they were given the models and told to draw that into the strip. Okay, because I've I've never been able to figure to 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 figure that because it's 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 not a coincidence when you you see the uh, the matchbox. Oh, it's exactly one. the same, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's the that's the 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 most information anyone anywhere in years has been able to offer me on that topic. <laughs> I will try and track you down the complete answer on that one. But yes, it was. I think they did intend to tie in, and it was a they were allowed to use it. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Uh, any other questions, Don? Uh, one other little thing. They've had little hints over the years. You've mentioned like the crossover. Do you know if there's ever been an intent to do like a a, a 2080 universe? Because I'm thinking. Uh, Johnny Alpha and Dread teamed up. They did, they, yes. They added the ABC Warriors and Nemesis the Warlock did a team up. So the Pat Mills universe where ABC hmm. Warriors, Nemesis the Warlock, uh, a strip called Invasion from the very first comic, uh, mm-hmm. Savage, they, Robusters, they all link up. He's even, I think, made suggestions that his um, his uh, fantasy era barbarian character Slain might be somehow or other in the same universe. Oh, so wow. that that has happened. There is a Pat Mills universe within the uh, 2000 AD universe. Other than that, I'm not sure there's been too much crossover recently. I know um, there's been a couple of moments in recent years where a couple of well-known characters from the past one a giant robot like almost like a mecha called armor gideon okay. uh, has turned up in a strip called the order and a character called revere who's a sort of weird witch boy uh, fantasy figure from a very strange strip by a writer called john smith um that character recently popped up in um, another 2080 series, but they haven't really sort of, they haven't really run with that or gone any further. Um, okay. There's just been the suggestion that there might be some linkage and crossover. Um, Indigo Prime, I think, was the strip where Revere hmm. turned up recently. Okay, because they did something sort of like that in the 80s with the Zenith, where they brought back some old like uh, British characters and they worked them into the Zenith setting, as I recall. Yeah, that's right. Zenith by Grant Morrison and Steve Yole is a British superhero comic, although he's a superhero who's far more interested in uh, 
promoting his new record and going out with um, supermodels than he is in fighting crime. Uh, but yeah, they brought back successfully quite a number of these old British comic book characters into this weird uh, multiverse crossover um, story that they were getting involved with, with these weird um, uh, dark elder god type villains who were trying to take over the multiverse so yeah that was great stuff Zenith that's worth that's the Grant Morrison strip that's worth tracking down um, and has again was slightly contentious as to who owned the rights to it for years but recently they sorted mm. out the problem and they've put out new collections so you can buy that now yeah, because because I I'd kind of like to see a Judge Dredd versus Dr. and Quinch story myself. <laughs> Often turns up in fan art of uh, Dredd arresting <laughs> Dr. and Quinch. Yeah. So uh, I think that's a good spot to uh, finish up for today. So thank you so much, um, Amon, for coming on and talking about 2000 AD and Dredd and you know with and uh, all the other assorted uh, weirdies that come along with uh, 2080 with us. <laughs> uh, I know Don's had a few questions answered, which definitely uh, have, have made his life closer to complete. He's, he's working on it. It's an ongoing project. Getting there. <laughs> um, and hopefully our, our audience has also found it interesting. And we'll go check out some of these uh, properties. There'll be, sh there'll be links in the show notes to Rebellion and some of the things we've talked about as well. And if anyone has any questions or comments, please Come to ObeyTheDNA.com and uh, check out the show notes. Uh, pleasure, guys. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Rob. Watch out for thrill suckers. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember... That to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya!